Welcome to the Vine Conversations podcast. Today on the podcast, we have my new friend, Sam Alberry. And Sam is uh, a man who's fairly well known in Christian circles. He's written three really good books. And Sam, I might screw up these um, titles, but the first one that I'm aware of, uh, maybe it's more than three. Up, I screwed up the contents of them, so <laughs> it's fine. It, uh, the three books that I know of, there might be more, so maybe I misquoted myself already, uh, is God Anti-Gay? Seven Myths About Singleness. Is that a correct title? Yep. And then, um, uh, does God? why does God care who I sleep with? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Three for three. So those are some um, three provocative titles. And I really want to get into some of the content of, of those books as it pertains to our discipleship. But I'd love to just get to know you first, Sam. Like, So tell us a bit about what yourself, how... Uh, a British guy ends up in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and just, yeah, just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from and what makes you tick. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, a joy to be with you guys. Thank you for having me on. Um, so, yeah, I, my secret is that I'm actually British. Um, so I grew up in the UK, um, have only been really in the States um, as, a, as a, you know, making this my base in the last year or two. So I'm a fairly new person to these shores. Um, yeah, I've have been in pastoral ministry for probably 20, 25 years now. Um, became a Christian when I was 18. And fairly soon after that, I felt God was calling me to become a preacher and a pastor. And becoming a Christian wasn't really part of my life plan. And certainly becoming a, a preacher and a pastor wasn't either. Um, I had a fairly big fear of public speaking when I grew up. So ending up in a role that involves mainly public speaking was was not something I ever would have decided for myself but um yeah I've I've my my calling has always been to to strengthen God's people that's that's all I've ever wanted to do in life as a as a Christian and the local church is the is the way that's meant to happen um so that's that's been my journey into full-time pastoral ministry and the, the kind of writing I've done and the speaking around the place has really been, I hope, a function of that very same calling. Um, and those those three books have all been on issues where I felt a very particular burden to, to write and speak in a way that will help other believers, because these are all issues where we are in danger of being very weak as believers today. So... So yeah, and Nashville, I've got to know um, a church here called Emmanuel Nashville and um, had a crush on it the first time I ever set foot inside of it and glad to be a member of that church now and involved in some of the leadership as well. And Nashville's a blast. It's been fun getting to know Nashville. Yeah, I lived in Nashville for about two and a quarter years in 2004, five and six. I was in the music industry and all that, but, um, yeah, I really appreciate, um, hearing about the fact that you became a Christian at 18. Can you tell us just a little bit about your conversion story and how that happened? For, for me, it's always so encouraging to hear people's conversion stories. Um, yeah. cause for me, I was just raised in the church. That's all I've ever known. And I'm thankful for that. But, yeah. um, I, I just, I'm just curious, can, can you tell us about how you came to know the Lord? Yeah, it all happened very, very quickly, to be honest. Um, I'd kind of been minding my own business as a teenager, probably agnostic on the whole, sometimes believed in God, sometimes didn't. Um, but had become really good friends with two particular Christians that I'd become good, good friends with and really respected them. They were different to most of my regular friends. They were they just had a kind of an integrity and a, and a depth to them. And they invited me to their church's youth ministry. And as a then 17 year old, soon to turn 18, 
I went along out of curiosity, out of respect for their friendship. I thought it'd be good to find out what made them tick as Christians. And as a 17 year old, I didn't need entertaining. I needed saving. Mm. And I'm very grateful that there was a gospel presentation at that youth ministry. And the first time I heard the gospel, it rang true. I realized it was different to what I had imagined Christianity being about. And what did you think Christianity was about? Honestly, I, th- I thought it was about God congratulating good people. Interesting. Um, and began to realize it was about God coming to find lost people. Yeah. And realized that very first time that if, if there was a God who was out there who had made me, I didn't know him. And it dawned on me that was probably on me. <laughs> that was the more likely of the you know which which side of that relationship is a problem likely to be on right and therefore i was by definition lost yeah. i needed to be found by him i couldn't find him myself um and began to realize that, that jesus was um not as bland as i had imagined was also not as easy but was far more compelling yeah and began to discover his his teaching and not least what he said he was going to be claiming his death would accomplish for us. And So did that all point, kind of click really quickly for you? Yeah, this all happened in the space of a month. Wow. Um, so I began to realize that Jesus died for me, mm-hmm. um, not just for sinners, in abstract but for me in particular and then realized i need to do something with that uh, that's that's not a kind of oh well that's nice thank you um and realized actually that i i could trust him with my whole life if he had given up his whole life for me then i could trust him with my whole life and i remember it was, i think it was may even have been the day of my 18th birthday i remember thinking i'm going to follow jesus from now on And I didn't know what that would look like or involve, but I didn't need to because it was Jesus. So therefore it was going to be okay. Wow. So yeah, that was a few years ago now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And so did you immediately start going to a church and get involved in community and like, had you ever read the Bible before? Um, I poked around the Bible a little bit just through, having compulsory classes at high school on things like that, but mm-hmm. not in a way that ever connected to the gospel. Right. So I think I'd read the Sermon on the Mount sure. and things like that. I've never really thought about what it meant. Um, so yeah, immediately through these Christian friends got involved in that church fellowship and made some, made some, got some good community there, found myself, now parachuted into this fascinating new terrain of biblical Christianity. And I had a, suddenly had a, a Bible to explore that I'd never really thought about before. Yeah. So um, started to, to read scripture, go to Bible studies and found a, an appetite there that I had never had before. Yeah. Amazing. And for a lot of people in conversion, you know, what's typical is you hear the conversion story of, and then everything changed and my life was happily ever after. <laughs> and it's for some folks, that's really true in the short term, at least. Um, at all, and at the same time, we hear about folks that, man, my life got better, but my also life got harder. Did you experience that in, in your conversion? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I, I was always an, a slightly angsty teenager anyway. Um, and becoming a Christian in one sense helped with that and in another sense provided fresh angst. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it is, I wouldn't swap knowing Jesus for anything in the universe. There's just nothing else like it. Um, but it does complicate things. (laughs) Um, as, as we know, he, he, gets under your skin and interferes with with what your life's going to be about. Um, And he gives you some wonderful new relationships and sometimes following him can put a a strain on other ones. Um, And I certainly found that to be the case. And also just the, okay, my life isn't my own now. (laughs) 
um, that is a challenge. And I had become aware as a teenager that I was attracted to guys and not girls and was all set and ready when I went to university to kind of explore that, act on it, look for romantic relationships with, with other guys, stuff I'd never felt I could do where I was at home. Um, and so becoming a Christian then again gave me an entirely new set of priorities and allegiances. And it wasn't very far into my Christian life before I realized that, that the teaching of Jesus would not permit me to do that. And again, I, I knew Jesus enough to know that I can trust him, even if he's leading me into some hard places. Um, and his words are occasionally confounding. <laughs> they're often very stretching, but they're always good. And I, I'm, a, I'm grateful, really grateful now that I was kind of converted through seeing the goodness of Jesus, because that's kept me on him when I might have otherwise have drifted. Um, so it's been costly from some respects, but then that's that's meant to be the case for every single one of us. If we're putting Jesus in charge of our lives and giving to him our aspirations, our dreams, our longings, our desires, um, there's gonna be some, some agony in that. There's gonna be some, it feels like he's taking life from us moments in that. But we never, ever lose out. This is the thing. It, it's always better to be with him. Yeah, that's, that's so well said, Sam. And I'm curious, as you were um, recognizing this same-sex attraction that's present in your um, just way of thinking and way of uh, looking at thinking about sexuality, um, and then you become a Christian, was there ever like a crisis moment there uh, early on? Or was it just kind of a, how would you describe that? Yeah, I, there wasn't a crisis moment. Um, there was a season where I felt resentment to the Lord. I never felt resentment to the Lord for what the Bible said. It just made sense to me. And I had tasted of the goodness of scripture too much to buy into the idea well that can't be right just because I don't like it but a few years into my walk with Christ I I just assumed oh well those feelings will go away and they'll be replaced by kind of the normal feelings expected feelings of I'll find a Christian girl that I like and I better get married and, and have a family and do that kind of stuff um, when when that didn't happen I found that the, the, feeling, the temptations didn't just evaporate with Christian experience and my feelings towards girls didn't change. Lots, lots of girls that I dearly loved as friends but never saw, never felt any romantic or sexual attraction. So when that change didn't happen, I remember, I remember there being a season of of resentment to the Lord, probably in my mid twenties, um, thinking, "Come on, I'm, I'm wanting something godly here, surely." Um, and it, you know, it was going to complicate life, not being able to do the regular thing of getting married and having a, having kids and and so forth. Um, it felt unfair that everyone else just seemed to drift into that, and I didn't. Um, but I, I eventually got over it. Being a pastor's helped. I've been around enough marriages to know it's that's not a walk in the park. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's ups and downs, whatever that's right. station of life we find ourselves in. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that doesn't get emphasized. Um, and that's something I talk about with my single friends or folks in my church. And it's not meant to be dismissive at all of the, the angst or the hurt that they have or the desires that are unmet that they have. But just be careful that we don't romanticize marriage because yeah. it's, it's not easy. And um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it if you're called to get married. But um, no, I, I began to realize, particularly in pastoral ministry, 
being unhappily single is one thing. But from my perspective, being unhappily married looks a lot harder. It could be. Yeah, it could be. So, yeah, but that helped me just realize that marriage isn't the answer to all the problems of singleness. Um, it answers some of them whilst introducing some new problems of marriage and challenges and, like I say, ups and downs, whichever path we find ourselves on. Yeah. Something I want to ask you about, Sam, and just thank you again for just being so honest with us and being willing to share your story. I, I know that's these are very personal things, and you don't really know us or our church, and um, so thank you for being willing to to be honest and transparent with us. I think it's going to be really helpful. Um, man, something that comes to mind for me is, um, is just the experience of folks that love the Lord, want to follow the Lord, believe what the Bible says about sexual ethics. And, you know, you have unbelieving friends and you talk to them about this and they just look at you like you've got three heads, you know, like you're, you're what? Like, why? What? Like, have you had that experience? How do you, yeah. in, how do you yeah. interact with um, your unbelieving friends and can you can you uh, bring us into that and what that's what that what that's like for you? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I'm I'm grateful I came to faith when I did. Um, in the Lord's timing, I was young enough that I hadn't yet got into some things that would now grieve me as a as a believer. I never really had an opportunity to act on those feelings of same-sex attraction. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, but I'm also grateful that I was old enough that I can still remember what it feels like to be an unbelieving adult. Um, and so, particularly having, you know, lived virtually all of my life in the, in the UK, I'm used to being in a, a secular context. Um, I, I understand that mindset. It's, it doesn't seem bizarre to me. It's it's something I can I can put myself in someone else's head and think I, I, I can get why they see the world that way. And so, when people encounter the some of the, the really countercultural aspects of the Christian faith, and the sexual ethic is probably the most sharp edge of, of the Christian faith, I totally get why people kind of think we're crazy. I really do. It makes sense to me that they would think that way. Um, and I think actually that helps in our ongoing discussions with friends, our ongoing friendships, is that we can we can appreciate where other people are coming from. Um, and my, my hope with them and my gentle challenge to them is I hope they will make the same effort to understand where I'm coming from. And... Yes, that the Christian sexual ethic, if you don't have any other context and you're a secular person, looks not just like something you don't want to dive into, but it also looks like it might be harmful. And like again, it's I can immoral. see why people can... immoral, right? Yeah. And this is this has been a big cultural change and, and something we've had to sort of get used to is maybe 15, 20 years ago, people would have said, I don't want to be a Christian because you guys are too moral. Now it's, I don't want to be a Christian. I think you guys are too bad. And that's a, that's a cultural space. Many of us haven't had to occupy before and it, it takes a bit getting used to. It's not, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, we've always been the quaint old fashioned people that folks roll their eyes at, but now we're seen as a danger to people. Yeah. That's new. Yeah, it is. So when you, you know, um, when you're trying to explain to somebody that doesn't know the Lord, um, why you live the way that you, you do, like, bring us into that. Because I think that would be really helpful just in terms of uh, evangelism training, but also talking about Christian sexuality with those that don't know. Like, how do you articulate why you have the convictions that you have in reference to the choices you've made for celibacy? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I, the, the two things I try and help my friends understand is that there is a particular meaning to human sexuality from a, within Christianity that makes sense of the various prohibitions that we find in in, in the scriptures. Um, there's there's something that human sexuality is for, and that means we need to. Once we understand that greater purpose, then we can begin to make sense of the various constraints and restrictions. Um, and it's not as if the secular world has no constrictions. I mean, everyone has boundaries somewhere when it comes to sexual conduct. So, you know, when friends talk about, you know, you, you shouldn't have all these rules, I'm like, everyone has rules, come off it. Let's just, just be honest on that. Uh, we all draw the line somewhere. The question is, do we have a, a, a coherent, way of accounting for why we draw the line where we draw it. And the most important thing is I, I've come to this understanding precisely because I follow Jesus and therefore my choices won't make complete sense unless you understand who Jesus is to me. And similarly, when, when, a, when a, a, someone who's not a Christian says to me, you know, you can't have that view of marriage today. I'll say to them, well, you don't, you may not realize you're doing this, but you're actually telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus because he had, he's teaching me this view of marriage and you're actually saying I shouldn't follow him. Do you have the authority to tell me not to follow Jesus Christ? And most people will say, okay, fair enough. I didn't realize that. One or two will say, yeah, that's what he teaches. He's just wrong. You shouldn't follow him. And then it's easy. You just, you, I kind of say to them, well, okay, just tell me what you've got going for you. That means I should follow what you say on this, that Jesus doesn't have going for him. Yeah. Cause he died for me and rose again. So that's where the bar is currently set. If you can raise that, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. So I want them to know their issue is ultimately with him. Right. And not with the church or with some thing called Christianity, but with, with Jesus. They're going to have to reckon with him. Yeah. And one of the things that I've talked about, and I have a conviction, like I don't anticipate this happening anytime soon, but it could. Um, but I'm not some high profile pastor where media outlets are looking to back me into some corner. But I imagine that scenario in my mind where someone sticks a mic in my face and says, how come you hate gay people? And I mean, we got to deconstruct that question, first of all, <laughs> like, but maybe they, they would say, um, what's, what's the deal with the Christian sexual ethic go? And my first response might be, well, how much time do you have? Yeah. Because, and that's, I think that's really getting at what you're saying. Like we have to understand why does sexuality even exist? And if yeah. we're a cosmic accident, that's just a product of natural selection. Well, that's one way to answer that question. Um, but to your point, my I have faith in in Jesus and 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 His Word, and so that brings me to a different answer to that question. That there's a there's a teleology, right, to sexuality. Like there's a and it's it you can't reduce it to a bumper sticker or a Twitter post. Yeah. So if, if someone is is earnest in asking the question, well, I'll give them as much time as they can spare, but I'm not going to be trapped into a, a soundbite. Um, because the issue is, is about people and people deserve more than a, a, a sentence. Amen. When it comes. Amen. Amen. Well, Sam, one of the issues I'd love to talk about, and I know there's overlap with those that experience same-sex desire and um, and also those that are living uh, a life of singleness. And it's this issue of, of loneliness. Hmm. And um, I've learned in my relationships with those that experience same-sex desire, um, I've learned a lot, and I really um, count that a privilege and one of the things that I've learned even in the last few years that I didn't realize was such a big deal is this issue of loneliness. Mm. And it's one of my friends described it like this. It's not just that um, physical sexual desires are 
unfulfilled, but it's the emotional, maybe even spiritual in some sense, uh, desire for connection mm. um, with a person where I am special to that person. Mm. Like the example is when, when my plane lands at the airport, I'm texting somebody immediately. Who's that? It's my wife. Plane landed safely. I'll be home in 35 minutes. But I've learned from my friends who experience singleness, uh, whether it's same-sex desire or not, that who am I texting when the plane lands? Like, who cares that my plane landed? And I want to feel that sense of, like, I'm special to somebody. Yeah. And um, that was just like, holy cow, like, I never even thought of it that way. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, how can we do better, you know? I know, I'm sure you've thought about this. Um, does that ring a bell or how, how do you process that issue? Very much. And I've, I've heard that and felt that um, in lots of different ways. Um, I remember reading somebody say once, you know, there's, there's no one that you come first for. Sometimes that, that can be the feeling if you're a, if you're a single person, you're, everybody's third or fourth closest friend, but you're no one's closest. Um, uh, or at least that, that can often be how it feels. Um, so there's, there's an immediate asymmetry there to all your married friends, because however much your friendship means to them, they will likely have a bigger, their friendship will mean more to you than yours will to them, because they have a spouse that is closer to them than you are. Right. So like that was, that was brought to my attention as well, where, um, if I move, my wife will be moving with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if my friend who I love, who's single, he might not be able to move with me, you know? Yeah. And that's the where the asymmetry finds a real world example. Yeah. And that's painful. And, you know, people will move for family. They'll move for jobs. No one ever moves for friends. Well, they C.S. Lewis once wrote that if you can, I can't remember, he, he would have written it much more eloquently than I'm about to say it, but it was something to the effect of if you can find a really good friendship, that's worth moving for. Um, but in our kind of calculus of how we, you know, make life choices and that kind of stuff, it friendship doesn't feature highly. You put the big things in place and then try and figure out friendship when you get there. Um, friendship isn't one of the big things that you tend to revolve those decisions around. Family and jobs are. So that can be difficult. Um, and it's where I, th I think that the church can, can make a profound difference and should do, because um, we're, we're called to be a, a community of believers who don't just have going to church in common, but who have Christ in common. And who are, are brought, whether we choose it or not, we're brought into a family relationship with each other. So all of us, single or otherwise, should have the feeling that there are lots of spiritual mums and dads and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters within the local church. Um, and that someone somewhere should be thinking about us, <laughs> hopefully in a positive way, um, but that we should matter to someone else um but i think too often we've we've built church life around the idea that the nuclear family or the married couple is the basic unit of church life and you build a church out of that and then you try and fit single people in somehow and it's all a bit awkward but if we, if we start with a different framework and think of the church itself as being the family, then you don't ask questions like, you know, how do I, how do I fit the single people into my family? They, it wouldn't occur to you to ask that question. The, the question is, how can we be living in the fullness of what the Bible says we already are with one another? And one of the, the kind of missed blessings of that is how much families also need that integration into the wider body of the local church. Um, 
because where I come from in England, and I'm sure it's the same in many parts of, of the States, the kind of prevailing narrative is that the nuclear family has to be self-contained and self-sufficient. And if you're not, you've kind of failed at being a family. You failed at being a parent. Yeah. So that kind of integration of marriage, singles, families, everyone, actually everyone gets something out of that. All the, all the boats in the harbour, you know, get lifted up by that. So we all need it. It's, it's sometimes the need is more visible with singles, but it actually, I've had so many married friends say to me, how enriching it is to their family life to have not just occasional involvement from other people in the church, but significant involvement from other people in the church. Yeah, that's really helpful, Sam. Are there are there tangible things that you would say to help a local church, maybe your local church or mine, just kind of keep this on the radar? Um, I think in our in our fast paced, you know, middle class lives, when you got three kids that are five and under and you're just trying to like you know think straight because you're not sleeping and disciplining kids and instructing kids and running to activities and it's like that typical stereotypical american life of the young family which which are a lot of divine church um it's like sadly it's a lot of like it's just trying to survive it's like you're a survival mindset and sometimes you might be not be thinking about the single person at your church that'd love to come over for dinner or or as you so articulated um like we actually need this you know we need like how can you help local churches just keep these issues on the radar and um any any practical helps to just do better i think um we we can lean into the the many texts that you know, all the one another passages in the, in the New Testament, but so many texts that talk about hospitality, um, that talk about our need for each other. Um, all of us need team, team church rooting for us, whether we're single or married. Um, so to try to cultivate a sense in church where we, we need to be doing life with one another on a level that perhaps we we've not been. Um, our homes need to be open to one another. That's actually going to help all of us. And I, it can feel like, well, I'm already busy that you're giving me extra things to do, but actually the, the, the issue is it's not doing more things. It's actually, how can I fold other people into the stuff I'm already doing? And you start doing that and it, it actually becomes a way of lifting the burdens of what you're already doing rather than adding to them. Can you give an example uh, of that? Yeah, I mean, just a, just some very trivial ones, but then life is a sum of trivialities. So, uh, you know, one of my pastor friends here, this was many, many months ago, we've been catching up and he's like, oh, I've got to head off. Um, I was like, oh, what are you up to? He said, I really need to go and get a haircut. I was like, oh, that was on my to-do list today. Should we go together? And it's kind of like, oh, do we? Do people do that? I was like, why don't we? So you are local, allowed to do that. The local bar. It's not like we're women going to the restroom together. This is, this is okay. Two guys can show up at a at a barber shop together without right. that being a faux right. pas. And it kind of became a pattern for a while that we would we were going to get our hair cut together. It's just one of those dumb areas of just doing life, but doing it with another person gives you, it's amazing the cumulative effect of that kind of thing is that it gives you a sense of intimacy um, because you, you, there's other people you're doing the dumb stuff of life with. So that, that would be one thing. It might be um, getting into a regular pattern of, I, I used to do this when I was in the UK with a few other friends from the church who were who were also single, where we just we would always eat together on a Thursday evening. Uh, two of us lived more centrally than the others, so one of us would take it in turns to host. We'd take it in turns to cook. Yep. Um, so it meant that I was only cooking one in four or five Thursdays, so that was less 
less life work to be doing. And, you know, the, just the rhythm of that kind of thing, again, you, you build into the, the sense of you, you're actually doing life together. Um, it doesn't have to be as, as routine based as those kinds of things, but, but that, that can make a big difference. Like just thinking about your, your, you know, we have daily rhythms, we have rhythms of life, uh, weekly rhythms, monthly rhythms. We do this with my biological family. Why couldn't we add a few other folks into that where it's like structured? Like, I like that. I mean, we had a, uh, for a few years, we had a real, a dear brother, that was single that would join us every Thursday night for dinner. I mean, if he could, if he was available. And, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, there's, there's a family I'm, I'm close to back in the UK and they were one of the best families I know when it comes to hospitality. And I remember one time being around their house and just saying to the parents, I really appreciate you kind of opening your home. And they're like, well, A, we like having people around, but he said, We've got to the point now where if we're not having people around and it's been a few days and no one's come around, the kids kind of struggle with that. They're, they always want to know who's coming around next. When are we going to see so-and-so again? And it's kind of, it just feels a bit lame to them now if it's just us. Um, here's another one, this, this same family, it made me think of it. Um, Incidentally, Sam, my kids say the same thing. <laughs> It's like who's who can we have over tonight? And I'm like, dude, I just need to chill. Like I've been in meetings all day, and like I just want to watch the game. And like, but I, I think you're right, man. I think you're right. Well, that's and the, the fun thing from from my point of view is sometimes that is the case, and it's like, well, you sit and watch the game. I'm going to do a jigsaw puzzle with your kids on the kitchen table. Yeah. Next Amen. Time. Amen. And that's for a single person, not necessarily jigsaw puzzles specifically, but that kind of thing is fun. Um, there's other times when I've said to a family, you know, if I've known they're going through a, just an unusually busy time, you know, I'd be happy to, to do the school run and take your kids to school. Um, it'd give you one less thing to think about. It'd give me, you know, that kind of thing is, is fun for a single person. If you're not having to do it day in, day out yeah. for years, yeah. kind of a fun thing to do for a week. And this family I mentioned, one of the things that we still do is, one of their family vacations is just them and the other family vacation each year, they always go away with a group of wider friends, uh, including me. There's two families and four or five singles, depending on who's around in, in any given year. And we all vacation together for a week in the summer. And again, it's, it's, it's a win for all of us that yeah. the kids enjoy having the kind of tons of people now to play with um it gives me an excuse to build a sandcastle on the kid if i can pretend i'm doing it with a five-year-old right right um, those who who would normally be doing the cooking every evening don't have to be yeah because we're all taking it in turns again and it blesses the singles it blesses the families um it doesn't leave me as a single person with that perennial question of what am I going to do with my vacation time? Is, is there going to be anyone I can spend it with? Yes. Because I know that at least one week, we're all going to get together. Um, so th those things make a big difference. Yeah. Do you feel like um, single people sometimes might have a reticence to want to like ask a family to engage? Like... Um, Like, I don't know, like, I think it can go both ways where it's like, well, we're just our family. Like, why would they want to hang out with us? Or wondering if a single person is like, well, why would they want to hang out with me? Like, and where both parties should just be initiating and reciprocating, yeah. you know? And, th and it has to be both parties because, you know, many of us will think, do they really want me around? Um, and so it, it's got to be if all the initiative always comes from one one of those parties after a while it's going to they're going to think it's always us doing the initiating and the asking do they actually want to be part of right. our lives or are we just kind of pressuring them to so we all need to try to get over ourselves a little bit 
and there's some of those natural insecurities and all of us have them. Um, and the way, the way I put it with, with friends of mine is, you know, it's easy to say, oh, come around any time. Um, it helps me to specifically be invited. Yes. Otherwise, I don't really know if you want me around. Right. Um, like the open invitation isn't quite as effective as like an actual date on the calendar. No, it's more of a gesture and it's, it can mean no more than I want you to like me and, and you know, but I don't necessarily want you to be actually part of our, our family life. Um, so we kind of, and the other thing I say to people is um, when they say, no, 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 we seriously mean you can call us up and come around anytime is I will feel able to do that. If I am 100% sure you feel able to say, Hey, now's not a good time. Right. Because the last thing anyone wants to be is the unwanted guest in someone else's house. It's just nothing sucks more than that. Right. Um, right. So we, we can kind of help each other out here, I, I think. And as, as we get to know each other's <laughs> insecurities and foibles, we can say, hey, we'd love you to come around. And, you know, we really mean it. Yep. Um, I remember one family I used to live in Oxford and there's a family around the corner from me from church who said, you know, we, we want you to be a regular part of, of, of our life here. And they would tell me off if I didn't come around. Yeah. I thought, okay, they really do mean it then. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another thing that's counterintuitive. Um, I was around at someone's house once and it was, it was clear the moment I, I'd said to them, I might drop by this evening, you guys in. They said, yeah, that's fine. Just come anytime. So it wasn't a, I'm coming around at 7.30 exactly. It was a, I'll pop by sometime. I was going to be in the neighborhood. And I said, I'll call in and say hi and see how you are. When I knocked on the door, from the moment it was opened, I, I knew we were in the middle of a World War Three level family conflict. Sure. And they didn't really stop that for me. So he just carried on yeah. and they were kind of afterwards a bit apologetic. And I was like, actually, it, it makes me feel more at home that you're not pretending to be something you're not. Amen. Um, if, if you always make a special effort when a guest comes around, you're basically saying to that guest, we don't, want you, we don't really want you to see how we normally are. We want you to see the Instagram version of our family life, but not the, the sort of less flattering aspects. So although it was kind of a bit awkward being there, and I you know, remembered the ways in which singleness is a gift, um, I, can, I, can, I can go back to a quiet house after this. Nevertheless, I felt, it, I felt like they honoured me. That I was seeing real hospitality because this was a warts and all yeah. kind of yes. take us as you find us. And this isn't the sanitized version. No, people sharing real life with you. Right. And not the Instagrammable right. bit of life with you. That makes you feel actually like they're really letting you into who they really are. That that's a real friendship. Yeah, that's real intimacy. Yeah. And then it means actually you can have them round and it not be perfect too. And it becomes a it becomes a win win then because we we we've we've stopped feeling we have to impress each other. Yeah. And Amen. I remember going around to someone said that someone had said to me some weeks earlier we'd fixed up. Uh, me and a couple of others would go around there for Sunday lunch after church. Uh, we got around there and they said, listen, we've we've had just the craziest couple of days, and so I planned initially that I was going to cook a nice meal and you know but I just didn't have time to buy ingredients or do any of the preparation so we've we're just going to have microwave lasagna for lunch and I my initial thought was thank you for still going ahead with this amen because you you could have said hey it's been a crazy couple of days can we reschedule instead you said no they're still coming around I just won't be able to cook for them as you know, I won't be able to put the effort in that I'd planned to put in and had wanted to, but the time together means more to me than 
whether it's impressive tasting food and an impressive looking home. Right. Amen. And that's so helpful. That's so helpful, Sam. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts along those lines. I wanted to ask you another question related to sexuality and our culture and the whole issue of celibacy. And in our culture, it seems that part of the narrative is if you're not sexually active in some ways, you're less human. The example that I recall from a book I was reading recently is the author cited the movie that came out maybe 15 years ago with Steve Carell, the 40 year old virgin. Yeah. And it was not presented as like a sad story or it was presented obviously as uh, a comedy. Like this is a joke that this guy's a loser and he's not having sex and he's 40 and he's a virgin. Like that was, I I didn't see the movie, but you can tell just from the trailer what that's going to be about. Man, help us to think uh, Christianly about that issue. And um, because, man, I just feel like as a pastor, um, we have to help our people think theologically about the messages that we're constantly being bombarded with that aren't necessarily overt. It's subtle, Mm -hmm. but it's it's constant. And um, I know you've thought a lot about this, but yeah, help us think through how being sexually active does not make you more of a human being than someone who's not. Yeah. Where does that come from? Yeah. It's a, in our, in our culture, we've, our anthropology has changed in the last 20 years. So what we believe makes us human has changed. And a key component of it now is, um, is, is sexuality. We've, we've kind of made that the centerpiece of our humanness. And so if you're not fulfilling your sexuality, whatever that sexuality is, you're not really being a full person, a full human person. You're not being the real you. So we need to understand that that is the case and, and to try and pick that apart a bit and say, actually, there's some, we're, we're bringing undeclared assumptions to the table culturally when we make those kinds of statements. Um, because there have been many other cultures around the world and, and through history that would think it's absurd that you think sexual fulfillment is the key to life rather than something else. Um, as a Christian, I, I just immediately want to point to Jesus and say, this is the most fully human person who ever lived. And he was not sexually active. Um, and so if we're making the fullness of our humanity contingent on sexual fulfillment, then we're actually diminishing the humanity of Jesus, which is is not a good thing. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Um, That's what is, you know, in in John's letters, that is the spirit of, of the Antichrist, is to deny the full incarnation of the Christ to right. deny his humanity. So that's a serious thing. Yeah. Um, so I think I, the way I try to respond to people on that is there's just so much more to us than our sexuality. If we, if we make that the kind of be all and end all, we're actually diminishing our humanity, not, not fulfilling it. Mm-hmm. Um, and leaning into what the Bible says it means to be human and the fullness of that and saying, yeah, sexuality is not insignificant. No one's saying that, but it cannot be the center of our sense of who we are and and what life is about. Otherwise we're going to have a very shriveled up view of what it means to, to be fulfilled. Right. Amen. And I think we see that I, you know, I, I do a fair bit with university students and, Frankly, many of them are having exactly the kinds of sexual experiences they would want to have. But if you said to them, you know, this is it. This is life at its fullest. 
I think a lot of them would say it's not enough. Right. Amen. Amen. And yeah, it's just, um, it's so dangerous in, in the respect that there's a lot of reasons why someone may not be having sex. Maybe you had mm. a, a, some physical problem, some, you got in a car accident and you're paralyzed or, you know, you come up with a thousand different scenarios. And so, so and then the message becomes. Abuse would be another what's that? very serious what's reason for that. Abuse. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. And so we say to those people that somehow you're just not living the life that you could in terms of ultimate satisfaction. Um, and you're in some ways kind of less than human. Like that's a really, really dangerous message. Um, it really is. And it's a message in our, our Western context that has a body count. Yeah. Because we're, we're training, particularly teenagers, we're training them to think, if you're not fulfilling your sexual identity, then the best of life is passing you by. And the implication is a life without sexual fulfillment isn't worth living. Right. And people are taking that literally. And that, that is not the message of Christianity. We, we have a, a liberating gospel that actually shows us <laughs> that's not the case. The, the very life of Jesus shows us that that is not the case. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I wanted to bring up another angle as well that I think is really important for the church when it comes to those that experience same-sex desire. And it's the issue, again, I've talked about this with some of my friends that experience these things. Um, it's the sense of hypocrisy. And what I mean by that is this. Um, historically, uh, the church has taken a hardline stance on those that experience same-sex desire. But maybe if there was some type of a sex abuse scandal at the church, we'll sweep that under the rug. Or the guy that wants to divorce his wife and the circumstances were a little iffy, well, we'll just give him a pass on, on the divorce there and turn the other you know, turn, turn the other way and not pay attention to it. Um, that, uh, w the church has been hypocritical in how we've dealt with sexual ethics. Is that something that you have thought about or that you see as, as something that the local church really needs to pay attention to? Oh, very much so. And there's, there's all the truth to that. Now it's not universally true. I mean, we don't want to sort of, of course, uh, imply that you know, no churches have, have done things with a kind of healthy sense of proportion and consistency, but it, it's always going to be easier to be most convicted of other people's sins. Sure. And not our own. Yeah. And so it's easier to go after as a church, the sins of homosexuality in the sense that it not necessarily easier today in our cultural moment, but easier from the point of view of it's not the sin of the majority of us here in the church. And so we can kind of come down hard on that because it doesn't cost us anything in terms of our own discipleship and repentance yeah. and obedience to Christ. And we might not even know anybody who's experiences that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nicely outside the building. Right. So we, right. You know, even though it probably um, is in the building. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, this is why people don't want to come into the building. Amen. Perhaps. Amen. So we've, we've just got to be consistent. And one of the things I, I love about the teaching of Jesus is he just, he just always puts us in the same boat. Yep. So let's always be more concerned about our own sins than about those of others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus teaching on adultery in the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a case in point because he, He's basically saying the human heart is adulterous. Right. And you've got to come to terms with that. Um, and that's why you need grace. <laughs> um, all of us are sexual sinners. And if Jesus isn't good news to people with adulterous hearts, he's not good news to any of us. Right. 
So it, when, when we start to kind of go down that angle, rather than picking on some sexual sins and saying, well, those ones are more deviant, perhaps, so let's attack those, we're, we're missing the fact that Jesus is saying, you have adulterous hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and all of us ultimately are in the same boat on that. Right. Um, and we want our churches ultimately to be places where any kind of any kind of sinner and any kind of sexual sinner can find the relief and rest that comes in Christ. Amen. And that's not going to happen if we are a church that loves condemning certain sins and turns a blind eye to other sins that are, are more prevalent and that are close to the home. So the, the model for us in this is, is the Apostle Paul, who said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Mm-hmm. So let's just always assume the biggest sinner at, at the table is is me. Right. Um, and that posture will make us safe people for others to then tell us what they're battling with. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I think another way to articulate it is like we say to our our friends that um, experience same-sex desire, man, Jesus just calls you to a crucified sexuality. And, and that person might look around and go, am I the only one that has to have crucified sexuality? Because I'm, I'm looking around and seeing like there's, there's other things going on here that seem like I'm – I'm really suffering here. Like I'm, I'm really want to take up my cross and follow Jesus, but man, is, is that consistent? And I just, I feel like, um, um, for the local church, like if we don't have a robust doctrine of suffering or just the idea of the self-denial for the joy set before us, you know, in obedience, that how can it be safe for brothers and sisters who have different sexual desires to really believe us when we call them, you know, because they yeah. they hear the call, but do they see it in our life, you know? Yeah, it it looks cruel and unusual because you're saying to some some people, you have to deny yourself and take up a cross, but the rest of us are, are kind of just going to sit on the couch, right? And again, it's just not it's not what the New Testament teaches. All Amen. of us have to that cruciform life, and you know. The, the friends I'm closest to who are, <laughs> are honest with me about their heterosexual temptations, it's very clear they need to leave, live cruciform sexual lives as well. That's right. Um, all of us have, have to say no to all kinds of sexual feelings and, and instincts and temptations. Yeah. To cross faithfully. Yeah. Well, Sam, let me just close with this. Um, How would you encourage someone who just feels like right now, man, I just, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. Like the, the, the cross that I'm carrying of celibacy and loneliness, man, it's, it's, it's heavy and it's painful and I don't know if I can keep doing it. Um, I'm I'm sure you've had those conversations, but how would you encourage that that brother or sister? Yeah, I can relate to the question. I think many of us get to that point at some at some stage of thinking, are we going to make it? Um, I guess a few things would would be one is that we're not designed to be walking this path on our own. All of us need the encouragement of other believers drawing near to us. And we're there to carry one another's burdens and to support each other and to grieve with each other and to rejoice with each other. So um, none of us can do it on our own. Um, we need We need the fellowship and encouragement of others. And then even more than that, if it's down to my discipline my efforts my spiritual strength i've got every reason to doubt i'm going to make it and so i just need to lean on the fact that god is the one who 
who keeps us. And that doesn't mean we don't do anything and we just go all passive. Um, but it means that we, we can have assurance that actually it is beyond us. Humanly, it's way beyond us. We can't do this. But the God who has begun a good work in us will bring it through to completion and is for us in that. And his grip on us is much tighter than our grip on him. Amen. That's so well said. Well, Sam, I, I really appreciate you and your writing. Again, um, if you're not familiar with Sam's books, you can just uh, Google books by Sam Albury or go to Amazon, and it's it's two L's and two R's, right? Sam yeah. Albury, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y. Um, highly recommend the books that he's written. Um, so much more that we could have got into that we didn't have time for. Um but Sam, I, I just really appreciate your thoughtfulness and your faithfulness and most of all, your British accent. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me on and, and blessings to, to you and your, your precious church. Thank you so much, Sam. So appreciate it.